We are in Romans chapter 8. And the reason why we've been spending a long time in Romans 8 is because Romans 8 is worth spending a long time in. My mind is completely overwhelmed by the things that occur in Romans 8, especially when we talk about the Great Depression of Romans 7 and the helplessness that we have in dealing with sin on our own or trying to live a holy life. Instead, uh, the Lord has opened that door for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we've covered, essentially, the first 23 verses of this, and I want to read through it again, but especially if you have a paper. I would like you to maybe, if you have a pen, I want to encourage you to mark some things, or if you are not comfortable marking in your Bible necessarily, maybe you just want to jot it to the side so that you understand what's going on here. But what I want to show you is the emphasis that is placed upon the Holy Spirit and why that is so important, okay? So let's, let's do just a brief overview. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3, the beginning of 3 is pretty much we're all depraved and no one seeks after God. God comes seeking after us. From Romans, the middle of three to the end of five is the idea of Jesus Christ is taking care of your sins before a father, a holy father, and he is able to present you as blameless in his sight because of his work, not your work. He simply asks you to believe. Then when you get into Romans 6, you deal with the whole idea of a new life in Christ where you lay down the old life and you are now taking up the brand new life because the resurrection of Christ physically deals with the idea of how you live spiritually. And that is a reality for the believer now. Romans 7 is, well, what if I try to please God by my own flesh? And I don't know any other commentary to add for that except, wah, wah, right? Sounds like a Charlie Brown teacher. It just doesn't work. But when you get into Romans 8, you find that the doors burst open. And that's where we look at. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I know that I've nailed this a lot, but it's so important that you get this. This Greek word, katakrima, when it deals with the idea of condemnation, is not just a, you're going to go to hell, sorry about your luck. That's not what it is. It's the idea of because of sin being an issue, we are now in a system where we are enslaved to it, and that's all that we can do. But there's now no enslavement to sin for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ is the key that makes the difference. Why is that? Verse 2, for the law of the market spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So there's our first instance of spirit. It's what the spirit brings to the table that makes the difference inside of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that's us, God did, that's not us, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So not only does the spirit grant to us this new life, and has the power to set us free from legal obligation before God, 
but he is also a realm in which we can walk so that we actually live full lives that are pleasing to God. This is the whole idea of what the abundant life is. It's walking in the Spirit. So now, moving on here, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the, here it is again, Spirit, the, the things of the Spirit. So, so far you've had Spirit mentioned four times. I hope you're marking them or you're looking at it to see the significance. Verse 6. For the mindset on the flesh is what? Death. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, is abundant life and surpassing peace. It's the peace and the abundant life that we need to live a life that is pleasing to God, which is Christ's life. Verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit market. If, or probably better translated since, indeed, the spirit of God dwells in you. Now stop. The spirit of God dwells in you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is taking up residence within you. He lives in you. He desires to thrive through you, through me. Through you is one thing. Through me, unfathomable. Think about that. The Spirit desires to do things with me. God wants to associate with me often, and he wants to flourish me in his fashion. That's incredible. He wants me to live beyond everything that this life tries to offer. When you were in school, depending on who you hung out with, we didn't have Facebook back then, right? So you couldn't like tell on yourself. For some people, ma'am, pot was the best it got. And what they found is they just reveled in that because that's the best they could do for their life. And let's be honest, it was an escape from all the responsibilities that were coming up that as you got older, oh, good grief, this is coming up, this is coming up, this is coming up. And what those people found out were either one of two things. Number two, I've become enslaved to that thing that I thought was giving me freedom, and they're still that way to this day. Or they came to the realization of anything that I try to bring into my life brings absolute non-fulfillment, and there's got to be something more. Because there's something inside of me that cries out, I am just not happy. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit comes in and meets that need in a way that is unspeakable. And when you have that peace, that assurance, when you understand that it's not about, well, now that I'm a Christian, i got to get my life in order. No, now that I'm a Christian and I've trusted Jesus with my eternal destiny, it might make sense to also trust him with today because he's going to do way more with it than I ever could. And all of a sudden you find that when you get your hands off and hold them up and surrender, Jesus starts doing it. Jesus takes the wheel. Thank goodness. So with all that being said, watch how it moves forward. Verse 9, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Notice, Spirit, Spirit, Spirit. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, 
Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit, and that should be capitalized in the New American Standard. I'm convinced of it. The Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But since the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life. And notice this is future tense, and it's important to hang on to this because what we're going to see at the end of this reading is going to connect to it. He will also give life to your mortal bodies. That means the flesh that hangs on your bones through his what? Spirit. The Spirit's the one who does the work of giving life. He's the one who quickens in those ways. He quickens us when we respond in faith to the gospel message, and he's going to quicken this funky old body whenever it comes time for the rapture, and it's going to be transformed into a new body. And I say hallelujah, because honestly, I'm starting to feel it. I know none of you are, but good grief, there is a grand difference between having a newborn when you're 38 years old to having a newborn when you're 43 years old. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot of time, but my bones don't know any difference, and they're telling me about it. Verse 12, so then, brethren, we're not under obligation. Sorry, we are, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You have no obligation to satisfy sin in your life whatsoever anymore. Christ gives you the power to say no. Watch this. We're not under obligation to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. It's slow process dying, essentially. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And remember this, the Holy Spirit is the Rambo knife that you need to get the job done. It is the only thing that can kill sin in our lives. It's the only thing, the Holy Spirit. Now we get all freaked out because we're like, well, good grief, that's spiritual and you can't really see him. And that's just weird. I tell you what, it's different. It's different from how this world system has trained us to think. But then he gives us a solution of how that works. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. How do you put to death sin in your life? You follow the Spirit. Now, here's the great thing about this. You say, well, that's still kind of strange. I don't understand that. Can you give me a map? Yes, I can. Guess what? You have one. Because the Spirit of God and the Word of God never work in contradiction. If you want to know God's will, I just wish I knew God's will for my life. Number one, you don't really mean that. Because God's will brings you to places that aren't about you. God's will brings me to places where I all of a sudden find out I'm not the center of attention. And that hurts my feelings. But why is that? Because he's the one who's supposed to get all the glory, not me. Am I still on? Am I still on? Excellent. So you're with me. So how do I deal with this? I need to be led by the Spirit. God has done something amazing in my life, and he is worth following. Thank goodness I've got the Word of God. Now, to say that, let me say this. If you do not have your own copy of the Word of God, there's a bookshelf right back there by where Mitch is standing. Everybody turn around, look at Mitch. Mitch, wave. There you go. There's happy Mitch. Okay? And he's pointing to it right there. Grab a Bible. Take it home. It's yours. Don't pay the church for it. It's like salvation. It's free. Take it. Okay? I want you to have a copy of God's Word. Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery 
leading to fear again. This is our verse, right? But you have received a spirit of what? Adoption. You are brought into the family with full rights and full access. The spirit of adoption. Us sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Those are endearing personal terms. So verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit. This is the testifying ministry of the spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also were heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if, and this is a contingency, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So having come to faith in Christ and having the indwelling spirit, you are automatically an heir of God. But you find out that if you live your life being led by the Spirit, and even when it brings suffering your way, if you hold fast to being led by the Spirit, you are then brought into a special designation as a co-heir, or what is often called a metakoi with Christ, a partaker, a partner with Him of special blessing and reward. Now notice that this has led to what is the power to live life as God would have me? It's the Spirit. And now, Paul has thrown in this thing that we don't like called suffering. And what we've got to recognize is it's so necessary for him to bring this in. Why is that? Because if you live the life that God desires for you to live, you will not live the life that the world's trying to get you to live. And you will experience friction. Friction like you've never known. And I'll go ahead and tell you this. In and of ourselves, we do not have the ability to get beyond the friction. It's impossible. So God brings in outside help to become indwelling help so that it would be flourishing help. And that's kind of what I want to focus on today are the things that the Spirit is able to do. Let's move forward here. The Spirit himself, verse 16, testifies with our spirit that we're children of God and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time right now are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, everything that God created on earth is groaning for a day, for a point, for a culmination, for relief. Gosh, I just wish I could get some relief. Now, some of you ladies can do some of the most amazing thing that I've ever seen in my life, and that is wear high heels. It's incredible. And some of you are shaking your heads because those things are, I mean, I'm surprised you're not like this, you know, leaning forward with it. It's incredible because I know your ankles are getting a workout. But I also know that when you get home and nobody's looking, you slip those puppies off and you chuck them across the room because you're done for the day. And what do you do? You put those feet up, don't you? Because you need that relief. This world is the high heels of our life. Everybody following me? Is this on? And it may make you feel good or it may try to make you look good. It may cause you a lot of problems when nobody's looking. But what you really want is relief. To rest. And that's what this is talking about. The rest that is available. The creation waits eagerly for what? For rest on the day when the sons of God will be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility. It went into a sin cycle when Adam sinned. The tree didn't sin. 
The grass didn't sin. Adam sinned. And the creation felt the effects of that. It was subjected to futility as well. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Why? In hope. In hope. Don't lose sight of that. Hope is the idea. There's a hope out ahead. That the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption, from its breakdown, from its fractioning, whatever you want to say, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. That's everything about the creation testifying to a day of relief. It wants rest. Now it moves to you and me. Look what it says. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the what? You ever thought about, man, if God's given me the Holy Spirit, why am I struggling? I mean, let's be honest. It's a new life, isn't it? It's difficult to navigate. This is a big book. There's a lot to know. And there's a lot to know in how you read and understand this book. So it takes time. And you might say, good grief, why am I struggling? If God's given me this, how come I'm still sinning? The answer is because we still have the flesh. And the flesh is a constant reminder. There is a day of relief coming. You have the first fruits of the Spirit now. You have a slight deposit going on that is letting you know there is a grand return coming later. That's what we're looking for. So, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Everybody see that verse 19, the creation's waiting for it. And then down here in verse 23, you and me are waiting for it. Does everybody see that? We're waiting for this day, the adoption of sons. And what is that? The redemption of our body, or what we would call the doctrine of, of the rapture. It's waiting for the rapture of the church when this body will finally be put off and my body will be changed to an incorruptible body so that I can actually stand face to face with the Lord Jesus and worship him without disintegrating into ash. It says here, verse 24, for in hope, there it is again, we have been saved. Now this is interesting. Because Paul's use of salvation throughout the book of Romans is predominantly dealing with your growth, giving way to your glorification as a Christian. This use right here is the only instance in the book where it talks about from start to finish, from justification to glorification. In hope, you were saved. Let's be honest. Would you have believed in Christ if there wasn't any hope on the other end of it? I mean, nobody ever presents the gospel. Hey, won't you believe in Jesus? He can do stuff. Nobody does that. You don't know what stuff is, and that's not very hopeful. If somebody telling you about Jesus cannot define stuff, you're in trouble. But when we start talking to them about the forgiveness of sin that's been made available through his death, when we start talking about the redemption that he has secured by his blood, the fact that they've been cleansed from every wrong that they've done, and that eternal life is a free gift that can never be lost, all of a sudden you got people's attention. Because I will tell you this, assurance is the issue. And very few people have it. Only Christ and the gospel offers this assurance. So in hope, we were saved. My hope is not, man, I hope Jesus comes through on this situation. I don't know. Some of his guys that he hung out with were kind of shady. That's the world's type of hope. My hope is it's certain and I'm waiting for it. It's going to happen and I can't wait till it gets here. Living 
in hope. In hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? Do you hope for what you already have? No, there's an eagerness that's not there anymore once it's in your hands. There's something about the anticipation that's waiting for it. That's why the text kept saying, eagerly waiting, eagerly awaiting. We groan inside. You don't groan anymore if you have it. That's the reason why we take aspirin, to stop the groan, right? So notice this. If you already have it, you're not hoping anymore. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance. Perseverance, why? Because there's suffering involved, because there's opposition involved, because my own flesh is disappointing me often every time I try to put faith in it. Because of all these things that are happening around us where people have been showing, I am not satisfied with what we have. I'm constantly wanting more. Guys, get this. Everything we see on the news, Jesus is the answer. And everybody will do everything that they can to get another answer besides Jesus because Jesus just makes us a little weird and too uncomfortable. He's the answer. Well, that just sounds wishful. It's not wishful, it's true. Read the Bible for yourself. Make a decision. So what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Now, we've got more to cover, but just stop for a second and ask yourself this question. Does your heart long for the day? And I mean that capital D. Does your heart long for the day? We finally set it down, and the things that we struggle with are gone. And the stuff that causes us anger is gone. And the grief that we experience is gone gone do you long for that day is there something inside of you that resonates that said yes i want that so bad that's what this is talking about knowing that you have this certain hope how do we know it's certain it's guaranteed by jesus christ god raised him from the dead not just because he thought he'd outdo david copperfield that's not the reason why he did that he raised jesus from the dead because he wanted to prove a point this is what your future looks like you will have life. Not just spiritually, but physically, I'm going to take your body, whether you buried it or cremated it, and bring it together. And then I am going to change it. And you will be presentable to me. Fantastic. Bring that day. Well, you're so heavenly minded that you're not any earthly good. Don't ever let anybody tell you that. When we start getting earthly minded about things, we got a problem. Being heavenly minded about things is what propels us to get through the junk that we wade through in this life. And good grief, it's deep. You guys know they make different heights of waders, right? Okay, we're talking full seal suit is what we're talking here, okay? Like maybe you got the visor, that's about it. But the snorkel, get, get you a tank, you don't need all that. Verse 26, so now watch this. In the same way, so in this intermediate state here of what we're looking for, what is the Spirit doing now? If we're longing for the day, but we're living now, what is the Spirit doing? That's a good thing to know. Why? Because from what we've seen here in verse 8, the reason why I wanted you to mark everything that's going on, because this new life that is available is Spirit-propelled. 
Is it Christ? Is it the Christ life? Absolutely it is. But even Jesus testified that the miracles and powers that he had were an evidence of the Spirit's work. He never sit here and said, you know what? I just do cool stuff because I'm Jesus. He never said that. It's the Spirit's work through him that was testifying to people. It was preaching a message. Well, guess what? He wants all of our lives to preach that message as well. But it's not really so much about you and me preaching it. It's about the Spirit doing it through us. And so that's what we want to see. So in the same way, verse 26, the Spirit, mark it again, also helps our weakness. Now, the problem with that is, first, we got to come to terms with the fact of, yeah, I'm weak. I'll tell you what, the quicker we admit that, the greater that the work of the Spirit's going to be in our life. In fact, remember what we talked about with Paul in 2 Corinthians. God said to him, my power is perfected in weakness. Until we are weak, until we decide that we're going to get our biceps out of the way and this great ab that I've been working on for quite some time. When we get that out of the way and we recognize my strength is not going to accomplish it, it's impossible. Now we've come to the point where the Spirit can move in and begin to fill these things out. But it's got to be a decrease of us and an increase of Him. It has to be. So in the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. Now, how is this? For we do not know how to pray as we should. You ever sit down to the table? Good Lord, good meat, let's eat. Done that? I did that one time. My dad lit me up. I think I was about 12. I thought I was cool. It wasn't cool for long. But sometimes we get stuck in rut prayers, routine prayers. You know, we just driving on the same road that we always have. This is a profound thing to me to sit here and read Paul's words and he says, you know what, you don't know how to pray. When I'm in this period of weakness, when I'm having to deal with the persecution or the suffering of the world, there comes times when it really hits the wall and you think, I don't even know what to say in this situation. I know I need to pray. And then we run into the F train trap, right? But I don't feel like it. It's almost like we get hopeless. Well, what good is praying going to do in this situation? Ha ha ha. God steps in and he bridges that gap. So notice, the Spirit helps in our weakness. We don't know how we ought to pray as we should, but look what he says. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. What does it mean to intercede? Intercession. Do we know what intercession means? It's actually an idea, a picture that is painted whenever Israel was in gross idolatry and sin and God was hot. He was furious. And he said, Moses, get out of my way so I can destroy these people. And I'll just start over with you. God was angry and ready to obliterate. He spanks like no other. And then all of a sudden, Moses steps up. And he says, but Lord. And he begins pleading God's word to God. Or some people would say it this way. Moses was standing in the gap between a holy God and an incredibly corrupt people. And he decided to take the place and plead with God on behalf of someone else. Now, this is incredibly interesting. 
Because when it says here that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, real quick, let's kill that. That's not speaking in tongues, okay? I've heard a lot of people point to that. That's not what it is. But what it's saying is it's beyond the groanings that we feel in this life. Let's keep it consistent with the context here. But here's what it's saying. When you come to a point, when you want to serve the Lord, when you're wondering why things are are, are going down the tubes really quickly, and you don't know how to approach the Lord, you don't have to freak out about that or get self-conscious about that or get torn down about that because the Holy Spirit is already stepping up to the plate and holding your hand and holding God's hand and praying on behalf of you. That's insane. God says, when you fail to come to me in your greatest needs in this life, because you're suffering for righteousness' sake, my spirit will fill that in so that you will lack nothing. Or let's say it this way, even when I'm denying the way that God's power could get into my life to carry me through these things, God's power is already stepping in there doing the work. Now, why is that important? Number one, it's an incredible grace of God. It's the intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit on behalf of believers who are suffering for righteousness sake. But look what he says here. Verse 27, and he who searches the hearts, that's God. God is the one who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Now, why is that important? He tells you, because he intercedes for the saints according to, Two, and the will of is not in the original, according to God. What does that mean? It means that every time the Spirit prays for the suffering saint, he prays perfectly. Now that's a huge contrast when you think about, we don't know how we ought to pray. I don't even know where to begin. I don't even feel like mustering up the courage. I don't even want to retreat to my prayer closet and get alone with God in this situation. I just want to sit in a fetal position and suck my thumb for three days. That's all I want to do. God says, even when you find yourself in that part, even when you find yourself in that pit, guess what? My spirit is there. My spirit is working. My spirit is praying. My spirit knows me and I know him and everything he asks of me is perfectly in line with my will. That's mind-blowing. That's not nebulous. That's not separate from who we are. That's indwelling. That's saying that the connection that you have with the Father in an intercessory ministry is never dispelled. That's a benefit that we have of God's manifested love for every person who believes Him. Now, of course, we come back to that, well, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. No, we don't. But that's what makes the ministry of the Spirit grace. The ministry of the Spirit in our lives is grace. So when I read through this and was praying about what I needed to preach on today, I was struck. Good grief. God has demonstrated His love and His grace through the Spirit in ways that I can't even understand, and I wanted to look at some of those today. So right here in verses 26 and 27, if you wanted to label this, this is the intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit. The intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit. Mitch, if you would, or Dave, I'm sorry, Dave's running the the thing. Would you bring up the quote that I have by Lewis Berry Chafer? There's a book called He That is Spiritual by Lewis Berry Chafer. If you ever want a great read, this is it. 
Intercession must be considered as being limited to that ministry wherein one stands between God and his fellow man. It is simply praying for others. Under those conditions, we know not what to pray for, but the Spirit, and I don't know why you got King James here, helpeth our infirmities. Prayer on behalf of others is doubtless the greatest ministry committed to the child of God and a ministry for which he is and always will be least prepared within himself. The frailties of ourselves. Let's go to the next one. We may become familiar with the truth we preach, but the field of intercession is new, unknown, and unknowable. A few Christians have entered this boundless ministry of prayer for others in the power of the Spirit. Not all have entered, but all Christians may enter, for in them the interceding Spirit dwells. You know what it says? It says it's a realm of access to where you can come and plead with the Father, where you're submissive to where the Spirit would lead you in prayer. Now that shouldn't sound spooky because we have the Word of God to lead us, but what's it talking about? It's talking about recognizing that prayer is our only hope in those situations. It is an abandonment of self-effort and allowance for the Spirit to be the leader. That's what it is. Great quote, great book. I encourage you to get a copy of it and read it. He that is spiritual. Let's look at a few other benefits of the Spirit. One I want to share with you here. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Over to the right to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. And watch where the Spirit comes in here. It starts with in Him, that's in Christ, in Jesus. In Him you also, now watch this order, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. How do people come to faith in Christ? How do they get saved, we would say? They hear the word, they believe the word. That's how it happens, right there it is. You are sealed in Him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed. I, I think Ziploc bags are one of the most incredible inventions on the face of the earth. I really do. I hated it growing up as a kid where you're trying to get the little things to go and you're like smoothing them. They're not clicking. And you're like, oh, I think I got it. And all of a sudden it pops open, the mouth pops open. And then they invented that zip thing. At first they tried to sell you on the green line. Does everybody remember that? When you put them together, the line will turn green. It made me so mad. There's nothing more than trying to expect that something's going to result, and it never does. But when they brought the little thing, done. I love it. Just get the air out of it, seal it up, and throw it in the freezer. Finished. I love stuff like that. That makes me think of the Holy Spirit. He just seals it on up. He's done. You are sealed up in Christ with an unbreakable seal. Now, I thought about putting a whole bunch of spaghetti sauce in one of those Ziploc things and turning it upside down and shaking it. But I realized we had new carpet. And it was Tabitha's, Tabitha's birthday. I don't want to do that to her. Because I can't clean that up. I don't know. Moving on. Verse 14. Notice that the Spirit is also given as a pledge. Now stop. This is the same idea as the first fruits of the Spirit. It's something that God is pledging to you. I'm going to do this for you. I'm giving you the Spirit to let you know my word is true. You know what that tells me? It tells me that it's not just a seal that locks me up. It's a seal like a king would put dripping wax on a letter, and with his insignia ring, he would press it in and leave his impression on that situation. That's kind of cool. All of us have that impression of the king upon us, and that impression of the king is the Holy Spirit himself, 
who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, God's future redemption of us. Right now we have the first fruits of that spirit, but he's promised a future day of redemption. That is his sealing ministry, his sealing ministry. Let me give you another passage that deals with the sealing ministry real quick so you know where these are. 2 Corinthians 1. It's important that you have these, you write these down, because I promise you this. When you get discouraged and you feel like that nobody wants anything to do with you, let me tell you that in the Holy Spirit, God wants everything to do with you, and he has already given it to you to make it certain. 2 Corinthians 1, look at verses 21 and 22. And this is interesting because it talks about what the Trinity does on behalf of the believer. Verse 21, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ, there's the Son, and anointed us is God, there's the Father, who also, what's it say? Sealed us. He sealed us, and then what? And he gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a what? Pledge, same word, same idea, same idea. So not only are we sealed up for the day of redemption, a guarantee of what's to come, not only have we been impressed upon by the Spirit, but all of it is leading to this day of redemption. God saying, I'm going to do it. And this time right now, just wait, I'm going to do it. The sealing ministry. We've seen the interceding ministry of the Spirit, the sealing ministry of the Spirit. Now, we looked at this last week. In 2 Corinthians, turn over with me real quick to chapter 3. We're going to look at 8 through 11. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it because we dwelt on it last week. But I want to show you this so that you don't forget what it is. This right here is the surpassing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look in chapter 3, verse 8. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Now, this is being compared to the law. And as Christians, having the Spirit, our ministry that's been given to us through the Spirit is greater. So, the ministry of the Spirit will not fail to be even more with glory. Verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation, that's the law, has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what was, sorry, what had glory, that's the law, in this case has no glory because the glory that surpasses it. Now remember, we harped on this. This was important. It's a ministry of the Spirit. It's a righteous ministry. It has surpassing glory. But not only that, look at this, verse 11. For if that which fades away was with glory, being the law, much more that which remains, it's an abiding ministry, is in glory. So not only does the Holy Spirit pray for us in the midst of persecution when we don't know how, not only does he seal us and impress upon us for the future day of redemption, but he's given us something to do that is full of his power in this intermittent time. It's all his work through us. That's another evidence of God's love for you, God's significance for you. God giving us something greater to do than to find people to play cribbage with on a Thursday night. It's better. Turn with me to John 16. John 16, another ministry of the Spirit. This goes with our moody challenge that I'm encouraging you to undertake, to pray about, to trust. The Lord wants us telling people about Christ. He does. And if we could tell one person every day, it'd be fantastic. This is the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. John 16, look at verse 7 through 12. But I tell you the truth. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, the 11. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper, there's a spirit, mark it, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning three things. Number one, sin. Number two, righteousness. Number three, judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been already judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. And I think, good grief, Jesus, if that wasn't enough, I don't know what is. In other words, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, is going to issue forward to the world a convicting ministry. Now, here's the great thing about the Holy Spirit. Everything he does is relational. Which means that ministry of righteousness that it was talking about in the previous verse that surpasses in glory that much more enduring, abiding ministry is this ministry. The conviction of the Holy Spirit through us. He does that through people. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's interesting with righteousness because I go to the Father. You say, well, how in the world does that go together? Who's going to be the representative of Christ if he's at the right hand of the Father? Me. And just as the Spirit was upon Jesus, the Spirit is to be upon you and me in ministering this to the world. You want to talk about things that we have to do, the Holy Spirit is not going to let us be idle. He's got plenty of things for us to fulfill. So here we see the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now we move on to another one. The guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit. Good gravy, do I need this one? And all you have to do is look at the next three verses. Verse 13. But when he, the spirit of what? Truth. Notice the Holy Spirit is never separate from the truth of God's word. The spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all the truth. Stop. One of the most important things you can ever do before you sit down with your Bible Lord, please, by your Holy Spirit, guide me into all truth. Your word is truth, and it doesn't hurt to have the author on my shoulder Let me know what I need to know about it. That's why we pray for what's often called the illumination of the word. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. What does he do when he's illuminating the word? When you've read a passage 20 times and all of a sudden something reaches out and smacks you on the nose for the first time. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit guiding you. It's a guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he's bringing it to your attention in Las Vegas sign type letters because he wants you to grasp what that truth is. He wants to make a mark on us so that we don't leave. Instead, by intaking the truth by the ministry of the Spirit and guiding us, all of a sudden, we find that a conforming ministry happens. We become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's his goal. That's his goal for all of us. Or say it this way. The Holy Spirit kind of uses the word in order to whittle us. That's a good Kentucky word. To whittle us into something. And he's whittling us into the image of Christ. He's smoothing out all those rough edges. He's getting away all those little knots. Man, knots and wood drive me crazy. But he's getting them out of there and removing them, and he's fashioning us into something that is pleasing for him. He, does a, he uses the Spirit to do that. So notice, guiding us into the truth. Notice, he will not speak on his own initiative. 
The Holy Spirit never says anything that's apart from the rest of the Trinity or the truth. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, I don't know if you recognize, but that is a sweet, sweet, sweet verse. And why is it so sweet? It's so sweet like candy. Why? What's he saying here? Look at it. The Holy Spirit's never going to come to you and go, you know what, I think you need to know this. And like the Father and Son are excluded. No, what it's telling you is, is that the Holy Spirit always, always has an audience before the Father. Always. And so whatever he hears, it's coming through him, and it's coming directly to you. You know what that tells you? I have a direct line to God. All the time. It's never gone. In fact, he put the receiving receptacle within me to receive everything that God would say so that I can know it. We are not dumb people. God has given us an incredible floodgate in order to bless us continually. And not only that, but everybody see those last few words? He will disclose to you what is to come. You recognize that there is no other book on the face of the earth that tells you how it's going to end. I mean, that's just such an audacious thing for anybody to attempt to put a pen to paper to tell you, well, we know how it's going to wind down. Well, that's so arrogant. How in the world could you possibly know? I tell you what, if you could prove this text wrong, we might have a reason for doubt, but no one can and no one has. And it all lines up perfectly like you're bringing a zipper right up, each little notch into one. That's the Holy Spirit's work. And the Holy Spirit wants us to know it. He wants us to be filled with understanding of prophecy. Because it's what's to come. He wants us to know what's out ahead. If for no other reason that prophecy lights the fire under the Christian rear end to share the gospel. We're all excited about the rapture, but guess what? There are people that are going to be left behind. Don't go see the movie. Stay away from Kirk Cameron. But there are people that are going to be left behind in that. The Spirit provokes us to know these things, so it says, good grief. I don't want my mom going to hell. I don't want my dad surviving through this tribulation period. Are you kidding me? That's going to be hell on earth. It's going to be awful. Yeah, it is. So how's the Spirit going to use you to make the difference? i got to tell them how to have life, because if they don't have life, they're not going. Period. The Holy Spirit is what thrusts all that forward in our lives, makes it a reality. Let's look at this last one here. It's important. I got four minutes. Ephesians chapter 5. And if you're familiar with Paul's writings, the dates that he wrote, the occasions of his writing, <clears throat> the situations that he found himself in, you will know that Ephesians and Colossians are, are what's often considered sister books. You will find a lot of themes that are represented on both sides. You can see a lot of uh, connection between those two books of subjects that they're undertaking. Look at chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Paul tells them, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And notice that that is in a passive tense. And your life, allow for the Lord to fill you with the Spirit. Now, what does the filling of the Spirit look like in result? Watch this. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Why do you think Emily's so happy all the time? Why do you think that is? Because she's drunk with wine. Is that why? No, I'm, I'm not saying you are. I'm giving an example. No, that's not the reason why. She's not being controlled by something crazy like that. When I'm sitting in my office in the morning and I hear the door open and it closed and I hear her humming down the hallway some hymn, I'm just overjoyed by that. Why is that? Because I know this girl's filled with the Spirit. Because she can't help but to make melody in her heart about those things. Because we can't help but to be dwelling upon the greatness of our God and we want to express it. That's where that comes from. That's the Spirit. That's the spirit in you. That's the spirit in me. Do you have the drive to make melody in your heart to the Lord? To encourage one another with the truths that are given? I mean, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. I always think of the guy in the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments. You know, the Lord's going to pour out his wrath and kill them. You know that guy? He freaks me out. But that's not what Emily's like, okay? But notice, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Everybody notice that it expresses itself in worship when you're filled with the Spirit? Everybody see that? Now watch this. Always. How often is always? I mean, it's kind of got that word all in there, right? All the time. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. It results in a joyous response of wanting to worship the Lord, but it also produces itself and thanking God for whatever's going on. That's what it does. Now, because that's there, and we see what it is to be filled with the Spirit, a passive thing that God does and happens, let's talk about the active thing that makes that a possibility. What's the activity involved that makes that happen? And this is where the idea of sister books comes in in line. Somebody should do a, a movie, sister books. Turn over to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Turn over just a couple books and look at 16 and 17. And you're going to see the parallels here because of the results. But the question is, how did it get that way? Paul's command, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, we got that. And we see the production that's going to happen out of that. But watch how it happens here as well. Look at verse 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Does everybody see that? The Word of God should absorb the library of your mind. It should be the only book on the shelf. It needs to be constantly filtering in the ear holes and out the mouth hole. It needs to be always going through the eyes. It needs to have a permanent stake of real estate in our being. Does everybody see that? Dwelling in us with an unkept lawn and the trees need to be pruned. And hey, somebody needs to fix that sidewalk. Is that what it says? No, it says richly. It needs to look like a mansion that has been established with the most pristine... Sometimes I speak in tongues. Pristine shrubbery that you've ever seen in your life. Why? Why is it important that the Word of God 
is the only catalyst that's given in this situation. Look what it says. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Notice it's in an expressive ministry in the church. Look what it says. With psalms, here it is, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, singing with, what's the word? There it is again, thankfulness. In your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Does everybody see the results of what it is to be filled with the Spirit? You are allowing for the Spirit to fill your life and to be Spirit-controlled when you are letting the Word of God dwell in you richly. The Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and the Word. There is nothing else. Bethmore Bible studies won't do it. The only beneficial thing in her Bible studies are the word that's in there. Nothing else. Now, am I knocking other Bible studies? Yeah, I guess I kind of am. But oh, if we had a passion to spend the money that we do and to spend the time that we do and to have the discussion that we do with this is the subject rather than something else that's supposed to help us make sense of this. Let's not neglect the guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not like God wrote this book and said, you know what, I want you all to be confused for a real long time. No. He gave us the Spirit to make sure that wouldn't happen. And not only that, He wants it to blossom. He wants it to explode. Can you imagine all of us running around speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? making melody in our hearts to the Lord, having thankfulness all the time. That's a sweet church. That's an awesome church. Like a hundred Emilys running around everywhere. It's a good thing. (laughs) I think that's a good thing. How amazing it is that the Lord shows his love for you and me. And he does it through the person. He does it in many ways, but good grief. The person of the Spirit indwelling showing us an intercessory ministry, giving us a surpassing ministry to undertake, the fact that he wants to use you and me as vehicles in people's lives in order to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Why? So that they would see the truth and believe. Not only that, but he wants to guide us into all truth. Not only that, but he wants to fill us. And he wants us to be a source of edification for one another. This is the love of God that is a reality now. Now, that's something to hope for. You don't have to pray for it. To pray for it would actually be to deny what the Bible has said. It's already yours. Are you using it? That's the difference. That makes all the difference. Let's pray. God, thank you for the incredible expression of your love in the person of the Holy Spirit. Praying for us when we don't know how to pray, when we're going through difficult times. He's already there. He's already speaking. He's already perfectly in tune with everything that your will desires. Father, we thank you so much for the surpassing ministry that we've been given, the power to live differently, to live as representatives of the new life that you've given, that we can serve as instruments of conviction, regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. The idea that your Spirit seals us 
for the day of redemption. It's a deposit for what is to come. It's a guarantee. It's you speaking to us in a pledge. Saying, I'm, I'm, I'm coming. I'm going to do it. It's only a short time. Don't lose sight. Don't lose hope. It's you letting us know that your love has not failed. That you haven't given up. That you haven't waffled on your word. That it's true. That it's sure. Thank you, God, for your guiding ministry through the Spirit. Giving us the Word of God. Indwelling us with the Spirit of God. And calling us to come to it with an open heart. Asking for your assistance. So that we may know you and grow in you. We thank you, God, for the filling ministry of the Spirit. And that the Word is the means by which that happens. God, I'm just overwhelmed and thinking about what a frail and weak person I am. Just thinking about how I never have my act together. That every attempt to do better is met with failure. And how important it is to recognize that you have given hope beyond what I often settle for. You give a life that is beyond what I often want. God, how awesome, how special that is. We thank you, Lord, for being so merciful. I pray, God, that that encourages our hearts, that it stirs up the Spirit within us, that it makes us understand the importance of having the Word of God in our hands and all that you desire to accomplish gradually, day by day. Thank you. Just thank you, God, that you want to work with such imperfect people. We, we praise you for Jesus making that possible. It's in his name. Amen.